Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is designed for anyone who has struggled with wellness, mindfulness, positive outlooks, etc. during recent times. We're going to cover it all. And today, the doctor is in, and we are very fortunate to have Dr. Jessica Gold join us to discuss emotional well-being in the times of COVID-19. Dr. Gold is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Gold is an accomplished author and frequent guest on major print and cable outlets. And most importantly, she has significant ties to allergy and immunology, as we will discuss shortly. Dr. Gold, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, I think this is gonna be great. Um, and I've been excited to talk to you for a while and I, I am a big fan of all the positive work that you do. Uh, and I think we're gonna discuss a wide range of important topics, but before we dive into those areas, can you just give us a little background as the type of practice that you have in your academic roles? Sure, so I work at Washington University in St. Louis, and when I'm in the psychiatry clinical hat, I am seeing mostly healthcare workers, their spouses, and their college-age children. I also do prefer the sort of like transitional age anyways, so we'll have patients from that group um, predominantly from the population of St. Louis anyways. Um, and then when I'm not doing clinical work, the rest of my 40% time, I have 20%. That's a title called Director of Wellness Engagement and Outreach. That's something that happened over COVID when I basically spent a lot of time doing the mental health of healthcare workers for the hospital, working on faculty plans and how we were going to get people in for services, aware of services, working on destigmatizing mental health for healthcare workers and faculty in the whole university wide. Um, and so I spent a lot of time running around giving talks about mental health, trying to get people to know that it's normal to have these feelings too. Um, not feel alone and to know what resources are available. So that's a lot of what I do. And then, of course, I teach where I can in the other 20% and write um, for popular press and research where I can as well. That's a lot, especially, this, a lot. especially this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do do a lot. <laughs> are, are you are you part of a team or are there other psychiatrists that join you in addressing this? I can only imagine how many uh, you know faculty members you have that you have to work with. Yeah, there are a couple other psychiatrists. Actually, when I started at WashU, there wasn't a big outpatient practice, and we've really built the outpatient practice specifically over the past two years to really address this problem. Um, we've also grown in having therapists. We didn't have a like a condensed therapist specifically working on this, and we hired four people and a therapy supervisor over COVID. So it's been a goal over COVID to really target faculty staff and hospital workers and their spouses and their children. So we're really trying and it's become a much bigger practice over this like past year and a half. 
I, I think that's really amazing. So it sounds like you actually had this in place, or at least the groundwork, and then COVID forced you to really operationalize on a larger scale. Yeah, I think we were getting there. I think it was in the thought process of things that we were working on. Some of us were already starting to do it for part of our jobs. And then with COVID really pushed us into high gear to get it done quickly to make sure that we had the resources and then pushed in a lot of the outreach work. And I don't know that that would have been there as quickly as it is. And I don't know that we would have done as much hiring as quickly as we did. But, you know, it built the services as robust as they are right now, which is really nice. It reminds me in our division of allergy immunology, we had uh, requested to get telemedicine up and running, um, I think, you know, early last year. And we were put in the queue and they said, yeah, maybe in the next year or so we'll get you there. Uh, and then, you know, two weeks later, it said, OK, uh, we're up and running now. <laughs> That's sort of what we did. I mean, we we're almost entirely remote, too, and we didn't have that at all. It was like one person was piloting it as like a potential option. And then all of a sudden everybody can do it, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. As I was looking at your background, I was intrigued by your, you received both a bachelor's and master's degree in anthropology. What drove your interest in that? And how do you apply all of that knowledge that you gained to what you do today? It's a really good question. So I'm a big proponent of studying other things besides basic science if you're going to go into a healthcare field, just because I do think we get really narrowly focused and we don't necessarily get to learn about things like history or things like English or things like anthropology because we spend so much time learning medicine. And for me, when I was in med, uh, when I was an undergrad, I really went in being like, I'm going to do pre-med and I started those classes and they were hard and the people were stressful and I kind of wandered in to the, you know, humanities classes being like, is what is this? Is this different? And this, the classes were smaller and we were having discussions and we were writing and I really liked it. And it was a different way for me to look at some of the same topics, but through a, you know, more unique lens than just the basic science side of things. It actually felt more connected to the human at that time. So I was doing a lot of medical anthropology. I was trying to understand a lot of why people become doctors and how we got to where we are and like some global health related stuff. So it felt really connected at the time. And the way I use it now, honestly, or the way it incorporates into my field of what I do now is like, I really just am curious about people. And I've always really been interested in people. And psychiatry is a field that is grounded in the story and the person's story. And anthropology is too, like getting the time to talk to someone, really understanding where they come from, how that informs who they are, why they're presenting, and not just looking at it as a symptomatic presentation or a diagnostic presentation, but understanding the, you know, biopsychosocial factors that influence somebody coming in. And I think anthropology really got me there. And anthropology also made me much better writing and made me more interested in writing, which I have carried a lot into my career. That's very cool. Uh, and I think that we're going to delve into some of those areas as well as we go into our conversation here. Speaking of, I've noticed these different trends over time and both the pessimism as well as the coping behaviors throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Early on, we saw initial waves of these long to-do lists. Like, finally, I'll be able to go through and get all these things off my list. And then, you know, people are learning to bake and sing-alongs on TV and things like that. But it seems like those have faded away. What are your observations on the ebb and the flow of how society has adapted and coped throughout all of this? 
<sighs> yeah, I wish there was like I wish there was like an easy answer to say this is how everybody did it and it was perfect and we're going in this pattern and we can predict what it's going to do coming up and that would actually be great for psychiatry and for psychology and other therapy related fields because we'd know what to expect but you know I think what we've seen really at the beginning was people really going for like the lower end of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. So am I safe? Do I have food? Can I protect my family? And a lot of that is not how is my mental health? Like that's not in the differential for that. You're not worried about that. You're just trying to make sure you don't die of COVID. I mean, that is what healthcare workers are still doing, right? And so you're trying to figure out how to stay safe, how to keep your family safe. And in doing so, honestly, like right at the beginning, it's not like we had a huge influx of people being like, I now have anxiety and depression. But then, you know, as it was clear that this was not a one month and done thing, that it wasn't something you could just like get over and be able to just tough it out and get through. I think people's coping skills were no longer able to be like used as appropriately as they wanted them to be. And we started to see more anxiety. There's been a lot of uncertainty. There are a lot of answers we don't have. There are a lot of answers we still don't have. So we started to see a lot of anxiety. The longer it went on, I think we've seen a lot more depression because people have been out of their routines for a really long time, out of their social circle for a really long time. Things have looked really different for a really long time. And, you know, kind of in the bubble around that, we see things like lack of sleep, lack of concentration, um, increase in substance use and change in eating patterns. So either disordered eating on the restrictive side or on the increased eating binging side. Um, then I think there's this sliver of hope that I would say that kind of came in as vaccinations increased. Mm -hmm. I think we didn't see like a dramatic decrease in patients or anything, but people were coming in with a lot more hope and outlook that was like, maybe this has an end and maybe I feel better today. And maybe I'm not going to just be perpetually hopeless about this situation. And as a provider, that felt nice too, because I felt like maybe I'm not going to hold people's emotional hopelessness <laughs> perpetually either. And then you know, as Delta has started to ramp up, I, I think it's just kind of all compounded and we're seeing everything even kind of in full force again with no real end. So we had that little brief glimmer of hope where people, I think, started to feel a little bit better and we're seeing it all again. Yes, it's it just seems to be, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, right? Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people said in a lot of ways that some of it is like trauma retriggered, like mm -hmm. we had this like feeling of this is what was hard. And I didn't even process this about March 2020, or, you know, April 2020. And then a lot of the things that are happening are similar, but only just a little different or worse or something. And then that's just reminding me of how I felt then. And then it's re-triggering me in some capacity. And if we tried to get through and say, oh, I made it. And then we realized that actually that was not true. And we mm -hmm. didn't. I think that that letdown is a pretty big thing for us. And that actually means like maybe the stuff we shoved down and the stuff we shoved under the rug, we can't actually keep there because turns out we need that reservoir and we need to be able to keep going and we don't have it. Yes. I think we're going to touch upon that in a second as we talk about uh, this new Delta variant as we head into autumn. But before we do that, I'd really like to talk about the effect on our patients. Uh, as you know, Allergists help children and adults with a wide variety of some of the most common chronic health conditions that affect people. So what effect can the stress and anxiety that you just talked about uh, stemming from the pandemic have on those who are also trying to manage these underlying health conditions? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's so like, it's something we should talk about much more often than we don't, how often the brain and the body interact. They're not at all disconnected, right? The only reason we have mental health so separate from physical health is insurance companies. It's not because the brain isn't linked to the actual physical body, right? I don't have to tell an allergist that nervous, anxious people make hives, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's, it's a manifestation of what's going on in inside their brain, right? And I think there's so many people that I've been seeing that they're having like those kind of reactions to how bad their anxiety is. And I think are having a lot of honestly, like psychosomatic sort of allergic reactions or side effects to things because they're so anxious about starting a medicine or so anxious about everything it's doing to their body and are so hyper aware of every signal coming to them that I think that probably makes people come to the allergist more with more sort of like, what does this mean? Or what what might this mean? And how do I fix that? And it wouldn't surprise me if that's true, because I'm seeing just like even more anxiety reaction. Um, you know, if you look in my inbox, I have a lot of people saying that they have like an anxiety reaction type thing to what's going on. Like I prescribe antidepressants all of the time and I'm getting a lot more nausea and a lot more like, is this rash related to the medication? And I don't know, but for the most part, it seems very increased, you know? And I think that might be, if I was an allergist, I'm not. Like I would imagine you're seeing a lot more of that, um, you know? And I do think it's really important that we acknowledge that some of those things can be related to stress and related to anxiety anxiety and that, of course, like stress and anxiety can worsen sleep, which can worsen a lot of different conditions that are chronic as well. And, um, you know, worsen inflammation and other type of chronic conditions. And I think, obviously, interact to make those chronic conditions worse, just that baseline. So I'm sure that you're seeing a lot of the ways that, you know, the disorders that I see interact with the things that you deal with day to day. Um, I would be surprised if you did it. You did a nice job highlighting how the symptoms can become more apparent or um, more acute and or, or they can be heightened in, in level of severity and things like that. But what about um, the effect on adherence? You know, with all these chronic health conditions, people are in charge of, you know, monitoring their symptoms, taking their own medications, daily medications, controllers, preventatives, things like that. Can stress and anxiety impact that as well? I mean, yes, right? So if you're worried that you got a side effect to a medicine, you might not take it. If you are tired, you might not take it. If you're concerned that you have a million other things to do and you forgot that there are medicines that you take every day, you might not take it. If you're not, you don't have a job anymore because of COVID, you might not be able to afford to take it. And that changes your ability to adhere to a medication. Because um, uh, unfortunately, in this country, insurance is linked to employment, which makes it really hard for people to have constant medication. So mm-hmm. I do think that you'll see that be a problem for people or, you know, honestly, control is something that you want when you have anxiety. So if everything's uncertain and you want control over something, often that can be food, right? Like mm-hmm. if you had if you used to have an eating disorder and you haven't seen it in a long time, you might see it again because people used to be able to say like, when I'm really anxious, I can at least control what goes in my mouth. 
However, you might see the same thing, honestly, with medication, because they might say, well, I can't control the world. I can't control how my kids feel. I can't control whether I get COVID. I can't control if everybody wears a mask or gets vaccinated, but I can control if I take my medicine or Mm -hmm. if I want to take my medicine. And I think that that does give you some level of control in your life that I don't know how often we're seeing that, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was a way to sort of like take back um, some level of semblance of control in your life that you might not have otherwise. I think those are all important considerations for all of us listening when we're talking to our patients, and especially if they're not having um, good control of their symptoms whenever we're seeing them in the office. You know, right now, I when I talk to my pediatric colleagues, um, they're all extremely concerned as we head into autumn uh, because hospitals are already full. Uh, we have busy waiting rooms due to RSV and other viruses that really slammed us in the summertime. Not to mention now we're seeing increased transmission of Delta variant, uh, children going back to school, masks, no masks, whatever. Uh, it just seems like one thing after another and everybody is just so tired and stressed. So what advice do you offer when you when you talk to healthcare professionals uh, to help get them through these tough times? I'm sure the conversation has shifted throughout the pandemic, but it just seems like we are heading into a very rough autumn and winter. Um, so how can you help us get through this? It is going to be a very rough autumn and winter. I think for me, it's probably the most people I've ever heard tell me that they might leave the profession. And Mm. that's a very different thing for me. I think I definitely heard I'm sad, I'm struggling, I'm exhausted, I can't concentrate, I don't like this, I don't want to go to work. But I wasn't hearing a lot of I don't want to be here, I'm going to quit work, this is horrible, I don't see why I go to work. And I'm getting a lot more of that. You know, I really wish I had a magic wand and had magic words and could like take away people's pain because sometimes that's what I wish I could do because I don't have like beautiful words to say all the time to people and spend a lot of time just listening and trying my best to be a place that people feel safe to actually talk about these things because unfortunately we don't enough. but I think what's really important for healthcare workers right now is that they know that somebody actually is wondering how they're doing and asking them, like, are they okay? And it, listening, because for the most part, there's a lot of caring for others and not a lot of caring about yourself. And we don't take the time to do that because we don't have the time or the time that we have gets spent on our kids or our family or mm-hmm. other way, other ways that caregiving kind of slips into our lives. And we don't even think about that, I think, and basically um, never get to go. So why am I feeling like this? Or how come I'm feeling like this? Or what are those feelings that I'm feeling? And it can be really helpful to just tell someone that you're there and, you know, listen. And if you are a healthcare worker, give yourself even like five minutes to just care about yourself, you know, schedule it in if you have to. I think it's hard to think about doing that because you don't have control over your day or your schedule, but we just don't at all get to say like, this is me time. And this is the time that I actually get to say like, I'm a, I, how am I doing? Am I okay? What can I do to feel a little bit better? And I think we just need to be able to be there with them and let them feel their feelings as much as possible too. Mm, yeah. So no easy, no Baymax, they're their hug, right? No, you know, I'm a big like, everything they're feeling is normal, right? I think we judge like the anger. You know, I think I think that we 
often judged anger, right? Like the healthcare worker who's angry about the unvaccinated person. But anger is coming from like a really true place and we have to be allowed to express that or it's just not fair. Like, I don't think any healthcare worker is really not gonna take care of those people. They care deeply. But if they're not allowed to say that this makes them angry or or hurt that their ERs are full and they can't take care of everybody because nobody's listening, that's a lot of really strong feelings that are not getting able to be expressed and that we're judging them for and that they're judging themselves for. And we can't do any of that. We have to let people be angry, be anxious, be whatever they need to be, and then also be caregivers when they're caregivers because they're human and that's really important. Well, along those lines, there's a relatively new development where we're seeing just this significant loss of compassion for many of our colleagues. And they're expressing this loss of compassion all over social media, uh, which is really heartbreaking in many ways. It, we've seen this, especially from those folks working in the ICUs, taking care of the sickest of the sick, uh, particularly those who have refused to be vaccinated. And I think, you know, our colleagues are seeing people that they're refusing vaccination, then they end up still having to take care of them. Uh, is there a way for them to regain some of their compassion or are you afraid that these folks are going to be lost forever? Yeah. I mean, I think compassion fatigue often comes because we care so much, right? It's sort of like the curse of caring. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is like, it's both a blessing and a curse to care this deeply. Mm. And I often think that that's like so much about what we do in healthcare. It's certainly what I do in healthcare, which is like to be so good at our jobs, we have to be empathetic and we have to care. But sometimes it's hard because when we care about people, people get hurt. And when we care about people, there's trauma. And when we care about people, sometimes they don't do what we want them to do and they still get hurt, right? And that's how you get tired of it. And it sort of becomes just like this empathy spigot that's out and we can't turn it off and we're just exhausted by it. And, you know, I think compassion fatigue is more acute than something like burnout. I definitely think it's not a permanent thing. I really would hope that if, you know, things can turn around at some point that we can turn it back on for people. Um, it might not be something that turns on automatically. It might be something where somebody needs to come see someone like me. Um, mm. And I think it's important that we think about seeing someone like me as a strength and not a weakness. And then maybe more people would go get help sooner before it goes from something like compassion fatigue to something like depression. Um, but, you know, I think if you do feel like you need to talk to someone earlier is obviously better. Um, and I would hope that that is something that people do. Sure. Uh, speaking of you, what about you? I can only imagine how difficult it's been for mental health professionals to deal with your own concerns. You're going through the same thing the rest of us are going. And then you have to spend all day listening to these same concerns from others as you try to help them. What impact has this experience had on yourself and your colleagues? What have you noticed? Thanks for asking that question. You know, I think mental health professionals leave ourselves out of this conversation sometimes. I think that that's our fault for sometimes saying like, we're not frontline workers, so we don't deserve to be in this conversation. I do that to myself sometimes too. But, you know, with rates of anxiety and depression by the CDC going up to about 40%, like 
it's a lot of people that we're going to be responsible for and we are responsible for and with people with COVID having new onset mental health conditions and with so many frontline workers needing mental health help. It's a lot of people and the system has always been broken. And I think people in mental health often take on the burden of the system and, you know, like try to have more appointments and try to fit more people in and then get disappointed when the system is broken, even though it's been broken. And when they blame us for not being able to get a follow-up appointment in, you know, a, a reasonable amount of time or being able to get in with the therapist quickly, we feel bad for it and wonder if we can fix it or there's anything to do. But of course, it's not our fault. Um, and so it's been hard. And I think there are times when I feel burnt out and definitely have periods of being more burnt out than other times. I mean, my personal therapist had to tell me I was burnt out and I didn't even notice. And I go around giving these talks all the time. <laughs> so I think it's just that, you know, it's like you can be exhausted and be doing the same thing and going through the motions and not even be able to identify it sometimes. And even when you study it or you are a person who's a supposed expert in it and I, I think that it has really affected me at different times and sometimes it can be worse than others, but I'm in a decent time right now where I'm doing okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, and I hope it stays that way, but I think it's really profound what you just mentioned that we have an expert on wellness and burnout, literally who helps educate other medical professionals to identify burnout. And as you were going through yourself, you, you couldn't quite see that. Uh, I think that's really profound. Yeah, I mean, I just thought I was tired and I didn't really know why I was so tired. And I went to my primary care doctor and I wanted something physically to be wrong with me. And I'm a mental health provider and I see a therapist every week. You know, I, I always it's really important part of my mental health support and my wellness to see a therapist. And I was like, what is going on? Because my primary care doctor asked me if I'm depressed and I don't feel depressed. I know what that looks like. And, you know, she's like, you're not depressed, but you are a frontline worker seeing other frontline workers. What else could it be? And I was like, oh man, I'm burnt out. <laughs> I'm, and then I just started laughing and I was like, that's, embar that's embarrassing. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about, but I think that, but that's, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing for you to experience and now you can help educate others and hopefully all of us can learn from what you went through. Last year we witnessed protests and, and Frank just outrage centered against lockdowns, mandatory public health measures. Now we're seeing it again regarding vaccines and masks in schools. What's the root cause of this pushback when people feel that their liberties are being taken from them? And are there ways that we as medical professionals can help address this and help people recognize the importance of these um, public, health, public health measures? We've tried to read on this because, well, I live in a red state and I've had patients say things where I wish that I could understand some of it and get to help them more to protect their mental health and to protect their health and, you know, get them to get vaccinated, get them to wear masks, get them to social distance. And the things that I've read talk about something called moral outrage, which is a psychological phenomenon when basically we naturally rebel when we're told what to do. Um, it's sort of like what kids do when you tell them what to do. But when we're older, I mean, it can still happen and it can happen even when it starts to affect us. It's just we feel like our sense of um, 
freedom is being encroached upon and it can be pretty fixed. And that's what I think people assume that we're really seeing. That's one belief. Another belief is like when people are uncertain or afraid, they sort of cling to to that like outrage as like a way to have something to cling to um, and to say like, well, I can't actually change the uncertainty or the anxiety or my fear, but I can still have my morals and I can still stand up for this. And that is something that I believe in. That's another kind of philosophy people have. Um, I think outwardly wearing a mask to people um, have said that it is also admitting that you're scared of something or like Mm. actually consciously confronting it. Like if I wear a mask, that means that I actually am vulnerable or I actually am afraid that this virus could kill me or I actually am afraid that I could infect other people. And the vaccine is not as like symbolically outward in the way that people can see it. It's sort of invisible. But the mask, I think, because it is so visible, has become a symbol of like vulnerability as opposed to like, you know, strength in the minds of these people. Um, And how do you help them? You know, a lot of what I do and the best that I can do is even if facts aren't right, the emotions usually come from somewhere. So I try really hard to have conversations grounded in emotion. So Mm. like it sounds like that really makes you mad. Tell me more about that. And like to understand where they're coming from, because I might not be able to have even a serious face conversation about someone being implanted with a chip because I might myself get really, really angry. And that's not helpful, even though I'm trained to really not react. And I could probably have that conversation without getting really, really angry. Um, I know that I can have a better, more supportive conversation if I stay in the emotional context of it and really try to understand it. I think that we so often just shut people down or kind of assume that we can't have those conversations or there's no point. And I think there are people that we're probably missing doing that, that have bits of knowledge that we could actually help them with. But we are so confronted by these like false statements or the things that they put up first, which is that strength that they're trying to project or that fear that they have, but it's coming off as this like kind of false strength. Um, and, and so we don't even try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've had similar conversations with many of my colleagues where, you know, uh, as medical students or people are somewhat afraid to ask about say smoking cessation, cause they think it's a contentious topic. Whereas if you just address it with people and try to understand from their point of view, you realize that they're not going to be mad at you for asking about it. If you ask in a way that's respectful. Uh, and I've had similar conversations with these topics as well during the pandemic of just trying to understand where they're coming from, uh, and then try to, you know, reach a common ground, to at least, you know, uh, talk about things in a civil way. It, it can be challenging to do, though. Yeah, there definitely are people with fixed beliefs, don't get me wrong. And I think in those circumstances, you do have to realize, like, even though they are your patient, like you also have people in pre-contemplation, just like you would, right, with smoking. There mm-hmm. are people not ready to change. And you're, what there's actually no point in fighting them on that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're mm-hmm. not going to move them if you all learned motivational interviewing. You're not going to move them from like 
a two to a 10 by getting in an argument with them. So there's no point in doing that to because it's not worth your time. And honestly, it will make you more burnt out and more emotionally involved mm -hmm. to have those conversations over and over and feel like you're not getting anywhere. It's much more like worth your time to have those kind of motivational interviewing conversations that feel like they can get somewhere, you know, the fives, the sixes on a scale of one to mm -hmm. 10, because you can move them because you can move them forward and not they're not in the early stages where you just can't touch them at all. I think that's wonderful advice for all of us. Uh, yeah. And along a similar path, we've seen hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID-19 in the United States, not to forget the millions more across the globe. Why is it so difficult for many of us to grasp large numbers such as these and truly understand the gravity of it all? Yeah, so it's interesting. I tried to look up some studies on this because I was curious. And, you know, one of the things that people say is like we have this psychic numbing to things mm -hmm. where there was a study on um, charitable giving in 2014 by someone with the last name Slavic. And basically he found that our feelings are really strong for one person in danger. And then when it like is multiple people in danger, they actually don't scale up. Like it's not like we all of a sudden are multiplied by a factor of two and then three and four, we sort of have our divided attention and we don't have as strong as emotional connection as we did to like that one person, right? And it's almost like I saw a quote in this Scientific American article too that was like, <laughs> sometimes when there's like, in, you're in a room and there's a bad smell, eventually you stop noticing it. And I thought that was like a, I mean, it's, it's a really hard way to talk about grief. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you think about the fact that we are actually species, right, we do adapt to trauma and stress and pain. And if everything we're seeing is trauma and stress and pain, our brain sort of goes like, you just live in this room that smells bad, right? <laughs> like, like, I don't want to be thinking about that all the time. It's not good for us. And so it stops really registering as much. And the longer that's gone on, we sort of just are dulled to it. It's a protective way, I think. Um, you know, I think that, that made sense a lot to me, both the sort of we are more attached to the one person because we used to live in these like tiny, small communities, too, as we evolved and that we can adapt to pain. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's also the idea that it also becomes sort of amorphous, too, right? Like the longer it goes on, they're just numbers and yeah. we're not like all gathering to mourn them and we're not even able to in some cases and when they're just numbers you aren't even perceiving the gravity of the numbers so not only are you not like picturing that one versus the two on that like get charitable giving sense right mm -hmm. you're not even like picturing a person you're just picturing like nothing because it's either not mentioned or it's just so much at this point, you're just over it, right? So I think that's why, to be honest, that we just sort of shut down from it. That's a great explanation, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it just, uh, I mean, it, it just seems like it's nonstop. And um, I've seen uh, some approaches on TV of, uh, you know, people describing it's the equivalent of three, you know, uh, airplanes filled with passengers crashing every day. But even then, it seems like those are just abstract sort of concepts. It's hard to understand. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it even might be something like six or seven at this point. But mm -hmm. it's like, you know, all that does is go, huh, that's a big number. Or that's yeah. a lot, you know, or like you can think about how outraged people get with one plane crash and you wonder, what is that? And I saw something, too, that said, like, you know, when there's one image, like an iconic image that people can sort of grasp on, sometimes that can be something, too. And if you have like a plane crash and you have just like the image of the plane crash that you see mm -hmm. on magazines, that you see on television, that you see on social that can also be emotionally tangible for someone. If you have over 600,000 deaths and they're sporadically throughout the country and there's nothing to say like, that is COVID. Like, this is what COVID looks like. This is representative of COVID to us. Like, let's share that and talk about that and view that. There's nothing like that. Like September 11th has clear imagery. Like you could go, oh, I can picture September 11th right now in my head when I think about it, right? And we just don't have that. And I think that made a lot of sense to me too. Like that's why memorials work. That's why mm -hmm. people that's why people care about memorials. This is also fascinating to me. Oh, well, I've seen countless emails, we all have, and courses and podcasts and motivational tweets about wellness and gratitude, mindfulness, things like that. So Dr. Gold, I'm gonna ask you the million dollar question. Are there truly any helpful things that we can incorporate into our daily lives to help with all this? Yes, there are helpful things, but I do really think that it's up to you what they are. Mm. So the thing that I hate most about how we approach wellness and how we approach taking care of ourselves, especially in medicine, is we do what people tell us to do. Like they offer free yoga or free mindfulness classes. And since it's free and it's there and they seem to support it, we should probably go. Or, you know, younger students, like I see a lot of college kids, they see some celebrity talk about some way to de like decompress. And so they try that. And, you know, if you if you don't like that method, you think you're somehow bad at coping like you did something wrong because you didn't like that method. And then you sort of like give up on coping entirely because yoga wasn't for you. Right. And that's just silly because there are so many different ways that like you can get stress relief and that you can learn to cope and the acute sense and in the long term. And it's really important that they're actually things that you want to be doing, because if you're feeling acutely stressed out, you should be turning to something that you know will make you less stressed out if you're feeling like you want to build skills to be able to tolerate stress in the long term, you should be turning to things that you like too. So like, for example, for me, I don't like mindfulness. I have tried it hmm, 17 times probably, including a retreat over COVID because I was determined to like it for like the 17th time. And just, I don't know why I thought a retreat would be the answer. And you know, I recommend it to patients all the time because there's brain evidence that it works in anxiety and sleep and all sorts of things. And I can't do it. I do not mm -hmm. like it. It is just not the way to make me feel better. You know, I will keep recommending it all the time because it works for people, but it's just not the thing for me. And I think it's, you know, for me, there are so many other things that I've found that work and a lot of them involve being with other people. But that has been hard over COVID. And so, you know, I've had to learn to change that and do more journaling and do more individual related things. But there are lots of things you can incorporate. You know, I see so many healthcare workers. And one of the things that I also think is important too is people say, well, coping takes a lot of time. And I don't have time. I don't have time for that. 
Like, how do you expect me to do that? Like, I don't have time in my day for that. And there are a lot of like deep breathing things, for example, that you can watch clips on YouTube and learn how to do it. And not only will people not notice when you do it in the moment, because everybody has to breathe um, and nobody's going to notice if you change your breathing pattern, it takes like two minutes, you know? You change the way you breathe. You exhale a little bit longer. No one's going to notice. It took two minutes. You're going to feel a lot better and you're fine, right? And that you just did something that you know works for you. Carrying stress putty or a stress ball or something like that, you'll just look like you like to carry something that you squeeze or play around with. Like nobody's going to be like, I <laughs> bet you need that because you're having like an anxiety problem, right? Like it's not a thing. You can also play with that under Zoom and no one sees it at all, right? <laughs> so, so it's just like really important that you don't make these grand statements because there are ways to make it work with your life. Oh, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, it's interesting when our phones, um, the, when the battery gets in single digits, most of us panic and we say, oh my gosh, I'm, what am I going to do if my phone doesn't get recharged? And yet when our own batteries are, are sort of down in single digits, we don't really pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I saw that in a meme somewhere. So forgive me if I butchered it. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good meme. <laughs> you know, we've covered a lot of territory thus far in discussing how the pandemic is affecting patients, medical professionals, society as a whole. But I'd like to ask your opinion on what's the difficult topic or conversation that's not occurring but needs to be had. Long-term sustainability of everything that I talk about. So yeah. you know, I think that there's a lot of band-aid fixes for how to help healthcare workers and how to help them emotionally. There's no long-term fixes for how to help them and making sure that hospitals are invested in caring for their own much more than right now. Um, you know, I think we think it's great that people have changed how much they care about this topic and how much they're talking about this topic right at the moment. But that doesn't mean like a year from now, two years from now, when we're actually experiencing a lot of the mental health out, you know, like outcomes of this, because trauma doesn't have a timeline, when we actually need help, it needs to still be there. And so I think we need to be talking about that for the healthcare workforce and for the general population, because the actual mental health workforce can't sustain the increase in need and we don't have any good solutions and nobody's really giving money to mental health or centering mental health in the conversation to really make change because mental health tends to not be in the room enough and i think it's really important to start valuing it and putting it in the room mm. oh that's really important oh boy Recently, I've asked many of our guests to dust off their crystal balls and offer predictions for the future. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to ask you the same, uh, knowing that we won't hold you to it, of course. But let's start with the dark side of things. If this winter is similar to or worse than last winter regarding hospitalizations and deaths from COVID with potential for school closures and um, things like that, what do you think will happen to public sentiment and our collective well-being? Um, you know that Saturday Night Live skit, like Debbie Downer? Ah, yes. That's how I feel right now. But I'll answer this question anyway. Um, you know, uh, I think that if we keep going in this direction, more people are going to be anxious, more people are going to be sad, and more people are going to realize they need help. And we don't have enough people, which I've said before, but what that's going to mean is they're going to go to people that they already have access to. So they're going to go to primary care doctors. They're going to go to pediatricians. They're going to go to allergists and they're going to say in your visit, oh, turns out I'm also anxious and sad. 
and you can't have access like access to a psychiatrist or a therapist because the wait list is two months, three months, there's no one in their community. And so what's going to have to happen is more people are going to have to get comfortable dealing with mental health in their offices when they haven't before and have really wanted to refer out. And you don't have time in your visits either to really deal with mental health problems. So you guys are going to feel rushed as well. So I think that that is going to be a big problem in the future, like how to even manage the mental health burden on outpatient care, because we haven't really talked about how this affects everybody. And then, of course, people end up in the ER when they don't get outpatient care. So it sort of spreads all over. And I'm not really sure how we're going to be able to sustain that population. Mm-hmm. Stressing the system that's already stressed. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, let's make some good predictions. At some point, this either has to end or we reach a state where COVID is simply endemic in our world, similar to something like the annual flu. So how do you think society will change for the better once we can roam about more freely and interact with less risk for infection? I think a lot of people had have had time to themselves that they haven't had before, and that has led to them having a lot of self-reflection on their values, on the things they prioritize, on the way they want work to look, on the way they want their work-life balance to look. And, I, and I'm and i really hopeful that those models like will stay over time and people will advocate for their boundaries and people will have these really flexible, creative, thoughtful ideas of how to incorporate what they want and what works for them in their mental wellness, what they know they like. And I think that we really learned by having so much time is like, turns out I didn't like doing all those things you asked me to do. And I only liked some of them, or I didn't like traveling for work all the time. I only liked like some of those things. And like, can we choose and can we limit those? And can we have some sort of decision-making around that, that makes more sense. And I, and I'm hoping that like, because everybody's had time to reflect on that, everyone will have more time to center themselves in these conversations and say, like, that's not the world I want to be working in. And that's not the life I want to be doing moving forward. And I'm a human and I have emotions. And I care about myself as much as I care about other people and my job. And so this is what I want to make it look like. Yeah, I would like that. Uh, And perhaps we can um, get rid of meetings once and for all. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, certainly the ones that could be like a memo. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Dr. Gold, you're quite busy with your clinical practice, media appearances, tweeting at all hours of the day and night. Uh, Do you mind sharing what you do to help cope? Do you have any outlets or fun things that you like to do? Sure. So, um, you know, pre-pandemic, I'm a big socializing person, big extrovert. So anything with friends and planning ahead of time. So like knowing that I have something at the end of the day or have something on the weekend to do usually helps my week. I think that's really important for me. And that's been pre-pandemic was like my go-to. Since the pandemic, I've had to alter how much social life and other people are what I'm doing. So, you know, one of the things I've really worked on is boundaries. Um, So like how much are notifications interfering with my day-to-day life? Like how angry am I when I wake up in the morning to get emails and like, how can I be less angry? And like, am I balancing my day enough where I'm doing some stuff I like with some stuff I don't like so that at the end of the day, I have like a better mood because it's balanced. And, um, 
can I get rid of some of the stuff I don't like? Say no to more things because it's okay to say no. So that's a big thing I've been working on. I definitely, like I have a dog, so I like to hang out with my dog. Um, therapy is a huge part of my self-care and my mental health um, day-to-day. Um, I really like stupid TV and like checking out and watching a television show that does not require any sort of mental capacity and does not include a lot of like death and dying and ah. emotions as much as possible. But that happens sometimes because there is a, a, a component of my job that is writing about pop culture. So I do sometimes watch mental health related shows. But if it's not related to that, I do like, you know, just really checking out and watching things like The Real Housewives. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, I have a, a, a friend and colleague who took email off their phone completely, and they swear that it was a life-altering experience. Uh, and I know many people listening right now just shudder at the thought of that. I um, Mine doesn't automatically update. So that was the best I could do. So it doesn't change the number when I don't want it to. So I have to say, I want to check email now. And that, <laughs> was, a bit, that was a big step for me. I couldn't actually take it off my phone. That felt too much. But that was a big step for me. I'm working on being able to not have my phone be the first thing I look at when I wake up and the last thing I look at before bed. But it's still my alarm clock. So I have mm-hmm. toyed with the idea of using a real alarm clock. But um I I bought one and I never put it together. So, you know, we're all works in progress, right? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That we are. (laughs) Well, we we teased it at the beginning and you know that this had to come out eventually. So uh, would you mind sharing your personal connection to the specialty of allergy and immunology with our listeners? Oh, of course. So my sister is Kim Blumenthal, who is an allergist at the Massachusetts General and a penicillin allergy expert who's been on this program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we've been fortunate to have Kim as a guest for, I think, two separate podcasts, which means right now she's ahead of you regarding number of appearances on this particular show. Uh, so do you have any sibling rivalries? And if so, anything that persists into adulthood? It's a good question. You know, my sister's almost, she's like seven and a half years older than me. Mm-hmm. And I think we missed the boat of sibling rivalry because there are boys in between or like above and below my sister. Um, and really I've always just looked up to my sister. And so real, there's nothing I could say is a rivalry and it's much more like everything I've ever done has been supported by my sister. My sister used to send me mixtapes when she was in boarding school and write me handwritten like letters when she was in college and always really protected me and supported me and was like one of the only people who actually told me when med school was hard that like if I didn't want to do it, I should not do it. And like, I think that's an important thing for you to have somebody actually say to you. So you actually take the time to reflect on whether that's what you want to be doing because this career is hard. Um, And she's just been a great support for me uh, moving forward and through my whole life. I actually just saw her recently, which was great for me because I've really missed her over the pandemic. Oh, is that the only time you've seen her in the last year and a half? Um, she would argue mostly, but we did see each other at a family event, um, briefly, but it was just like a weekend and, a and was not like at all, as long as this, this was like over a week and I got to spend time with just her and her family. And so that was a lot more time and much more like it usually is. <laughs> sure. Oh, that's great. 
Um, well, thanks for sharing that. I, I think that's a nice connection, and, and many of our listeners know who your sister is, of course. Well, as we come to a close uh, with our discussion today, would you be willing to answer some rapid-fire questions, um, more on the fun side? Sure. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's start with the uh, first question. What movie do you always stop to watch when you're scrolling through the guide late at night, uh, regardless of what part of the movie that it's on? <laughs> I really want to say Mean Girls, but I feel like that's going to mean something and someone's going to like write in and say something about my mental health and that choice. But I, I really probably would say Mean Girls. Yeah, that's OK. We're not analyzing you. That's fine. <laughs> uh, is there a book that you recommend most often to friends or colleagues and why? Um, you know, the best mental health books, honestly, are like all things written by Brene Brown. Um, mm -hmm. And then like people really like things like The Body Keeps the Score. I also like this book called What Made Maddie Run, which is about college mental health. Um, and that's always been a book I really recommend and really love. Um, those are the books that come to mind right off the top of my head as books that I think like everybody should read. Oh, Chanel Miller's book is also great. Um, know My Name. Know my name. Okay. Well, those are great. Uh, and then do you go for sweets or salty when snacking? Sweets for sure. But I don't keep a lot of that in my house because I would eat it all. <laughs> you, you, you've learned your, your limits. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, the Costco size bag of chocolate chips is my, my all time weakness, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to stop bringing it in. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, here's the last one. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Yes, so I'm at Dr. Jesse Gold, Jesse spelled J-E-S-S-I, on both Twitter and Instagram. And I also have a website, which is just drjessiegold.com. And that's where, like, you can get all my writing and you can contact me through there, too. Um, but that way you can see the kind of stuff I do for Pop Press. And we share some of that with your patients if you're interested, because I write a lot of stuff that's aimed at that audience. Hmm. Oh, great. Okay. Well, Dr. Gold, this has really been an incredible conversation, and I truly appreciate you taking the time to join us. We talked about some difficult things, and I know these are things that you talk about all day, every day as well. So uh, I'm sure it's going to be helpful for a lot of folks who have listened. But do you have any last words before we depart? Um, the one thing I would just say is that it's really important to remember that we're all human and you might be listening to this and go like, I'm an allergist. I feel totally fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I go to work every day, but all my patients, the last thing to go is work. Pretty much everybody can do work because it's like the rote thing that we do and we can always do work. And so please check in with yourself if you're noticing that you're not sleeping, not eating, not acting the way that you want and you're not enjoying life, like get help. It's not something we talk about enough that we need to do it. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you again for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.